Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. At this point, most shows are winding down. Roy is just getting started. The Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. Today, on behalf of President Trump, I bring you this assurance. The United States of America strongly supports NATO and will be unwavering in our commitment. The President of the United States expects our allies to keep their word, to fulfill this commitment, and for most, that means the time has come to do more. Well, the time has come to pay more. That's what... uh The Vice President of the United States is saying, and that's what the Secretary of Defense, uh, General Jim Mattis, told Canada and other NATO nations earlier in the week. And the Prime Minister has said, said in Germany, I read a little earlier today, he's being somewhat noncommittal about this, saying there are different ways that uh, countries contribute. And he also pointed out that Canada is restocking its military. I guess restocking is not the right word. It's not a shelf. Lieutenant Colonel Steve Day joins us on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network, the former commanding officer of Joint Task Force 2, Canada's National Counterterrorism Force. He's now president of Reticle, a premium niche security solutions company. Colonel Day, it's uh, always a privilege to speak with you. Thank you very much for taking the time. Roy, pleasure to be with you and your listeners again on this Saturday. What do you make of the Trump administration very clearly and very definitively pointing out, first of all, by the Secretary of Defense and now the Vice President, uh, both of them in Europe, making the case to European NATO nations, I guess all NATO nations, you'd better pitch in, you'd better do what you said you would do, the agreement that we had in 2014, we want a percentage of your GDP delivered and and contributed to NATO. What do you make of that? Well, Roy, it's a, it's something that uh, we we routinely hear and heard for many years from the uh, U.S. administration, in particular, because they carry a significant burden there for for propping up NATO. So it, it's not uh, it's nothing new. It's something we hear every couple of years. And the reality is, when you look at it from a Canadian perspective, Canada contributes approximately six percent to the NATO budget. So it's not insignificant by far. It's not the lion's share, but it is a fairly significant piece uh, of of money and commitment that, uh, that Canada is putting forth. What is the uh, commitment to NATO? What, 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 is it, what does it accomplish? What are we talking about? We are, we'll count the number of planes and ships uh, that you have and the numbers of troops you can make available. Is it definitive? Is it, a, is it a, uh, a, an exercise in, in counting the, uh, the assets that the country has? Well, it's a, yes, it, it is. Obviously, there are some hard numbers in terms of how many ships, brigades, aircraft are you putting into uh, defending Europe, so to speak. Um, but as well, there are those intangible uh, asks. So when you look at Canada, and this is where uh, Chief of Defence Staff John Vance is, is particularly adroit and understands this. When you look at what Canada did in Afghanistan as compared to the rest of those NATO allies, we absolutely punched above our weight. We took a, a significantly higher disproportionate share of the casualties than a lot of our NATO allies. And uh, irrespective of the fact that they, you know, we may only be paying uh, 1% of GDP, Canada absolutely punches above its weight when it matters. And you don't have to look at the, uh, the Latvian deployment of a battle group. Canada's going to lead one of those four NATO battle groups. That's not to say we can't do more. We absolutely can do more. And in this country, we should be doing more. 
but we are still doing a rather significant uh, chunk of the task at hand. Colonel Day, I remember during the Afghanistan campaign speaking quite regularly on the program with Major General Lewis McKenzie. And uh, General McKenzie pointed out time and again that our NATO allies were particularly adroit at uh, keeping their troops in Kabul and keep them, keeping them relatively safe and well-entertained, while our uh, Canadian forces and American forces, Australians and a few others, were up at the pointy end of the stick. And I would imagine uh, you were probably there with them. Uh, absolutely. And, when that, and that's my point. Um, when you look at Afghanistan in particular, Canada and Kandahar and across, uh, across Afghanistan, we punched well above our weight. We took on a very significant challenge in the south, which was Kandahar province. I would argue, outside of the American contribution, the only ones that even came close was the British contribution in Helmand. So this is where I come back to the CDS, Jonathan Vance. When he talks about, uh, you know, it's more than just money, it's more than just boots, it's actually who's willing to share the risk and share the burden. And Canada often does that. Let me go back to the maybe lack of contribution or lack of significant contribution from some NATO members in Afghanistan. Does this point to um, maybe a, a lesser relevance of some countries in participating in NATO? Are we better off? I, I don't know if this is the correct way to phrase it. Would we be better off without a few of them? Well, I would, I would never want to say we would be better off without friends and allies, but without a doubt, some allies are difficult to work with. It's just the nature of coalition operations. So what, what becomes interesting, though, is when you are seen to be sharing the burden, sharing the risk, taking casualties, and doing your part or doing more than your part, then you actually get a seat at the, the big boys' table, so to speak. You get to sit there, your voice is heard, and what you want as a nation starts to be, uh, you know, it's on the agenda. If you're not one of those contributing nations, or you're a nation that has a whole bunch of caveats, then quite honestly, it's interesting that you're there, but your perspective is not really listened to. It's interesting you say that, because I recall you and I speaking about this very issue. You're bringing it up when we were talking about Mr. Trudeau having made the decision to remove the CF-18s from, uh, from the, uh, the Syrian campaign, the Syrian coalition. And you said, when you do that sort of thing, what you will end up eventually doing, or the result will be, that your partners, your coalition partners, and or your NATO partners, or your allies, over a period of time, will start to look at you a little differently, and when there's a meeting or where there's some high-level activity going on, you may not be invited, and if you are, your voice is not going to be all that important. Yeah, absolutely, and it's just, and it's just the, the nature of coalition operations. So uh, when you look at NATO, what people often forget is where is the western flank of NATO? People seem to think it's somewhere in Western Europe. The reality is the United States has possessions and commitments in Asia. So if you look at NATO, the western flank of NATO isn't only Europe. It goes all the way across the Pacific, and a lot of people forget about that. A lot of people, when they think of NATO, they think of Tom Clancy, and they think of uh, American jet fighters uh, trying to hold back Russian tanks or Soviet tanks. That's the old, that's the old model. That is the old model, and when you when you look at what uh, you know Russia is doing these days, it is making NATO more relevant because NATO arguably lost a little bit of its relevant in the re- relevancy in the current 21st century uh, security uh, paradigm that we're living in. But as Russia continues to do some interesting things in Eastern Europe, then it is bringing NATO back to the fore as an alliance, as the preeminent alliance in in the world, and certainly one of the the most important ones for Canada. I would argue. The only alliance more important than NATO from a Canadian perspective 
is NORAD and our relationship in defending North America with the United States. Yeah. General Day, we're going to take a break. When we come back, I'd like to talk to you about what happens when Mosul and Raqqa fall and ISIS no longer has a caliphate, no longer has a capital to call its own. What happens to the terror threat at that point? We're going to come back with Lieutenant Colonel Steve Day, retired, the former commanding officer of Canada's elite Joint Task Force Two counterterrorism unit. Stay with us. Roy won't take no or no comment sitting down. This is the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. We're on Twitter at the Roy Green Show at the Roy Green Show. Follow me on Twitter and uh, send me your tweets, and I'll read some of them on the air. And it's always uh, it's always interesting how people how creative people can be in 140 characters or less. The abbreviations are fascinating. And then when we send out a regular email, we start to use those abbreviations. I, at least I do, just by default. That people have no idea what I'm what I'm trying to tell them. Lieutenant Colonel Steve Day is with us, a former commanding officer of. JTF2, Joint Task Force 2, Canada's um, National Anti-Terrorism Group the uh, and, uh, and Special Forces Unit. Colonel Day, we've talked about the issue of, of, uh, of ISIS, and we've talked about the role that could be played by special forces um, from, from allied countries, NATO countries, the coalition countries, and allowing special forces groups, small groups, to go and do what they do best, and that is to disrupt and cause problems and 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 bring the uh, fight to to ISIS, but now we have uh, Mosul is under si- significant attack. That's going to fall. The prediction is you would know far better than I, but the prediction I've read is that Raqqa is going to fall maybe before the end of the year, and that leaves ISIS with no caliphate, no um, no no capital city, but still with a, a lot of followers and and with a tremendous amount of anger and frustration and likely a call for increased terrorism. How do you see that all developing? Well, well, you're right, Roy. As Mosul will undoubtedly be retaken, Raqqa and the rest of the uh, the terrain in and around northern Syria, northern Iraq. Um, it's a challenge with Daesh, ISIL, ISIS, whatever you want to call it, is that it's an ideology. And so this ideology is just going to morph again. It'll turn into something new. It may find a new home somewhere else. But if we don't get serious about dealing with the long-term um, root drivers of this, it will just pop up somewhere else. So Although we're going to win, there's no doubt in my mind we're going to win militarily on the ground because it's just the nature of uh, 21st century Western firepower, Western military uh, knowledge and, and uh, finesse and expertise. But to solve this problem, we've got to solve some of these root causes across the Middle East, North Africa, and help these disenfranchised people and, and sort of the governance problem. So it's going to fall? Absolutely. What are we going to do behind it? Otherwise, we'll just keep playing whack-a-mole around the world. Do you sense that there's the kind of commitment to do exactly what you said is necessary to, to, uh, to, to I guess, do an end around on ISIS being effective? I, I've spoken in the past with, uh, with a former executive officer to General David Petraeus, Peter Mansour, 
And and his his frustration is that ISIS didn't need to exist because they basically had it destroyed when uh, during the uh, the surge, or at least had the the fundamentals, the, the the cornerstones for ISIS destroyed. Now they, of course, they they surfaced and became what they became. Uh, is there the kind of political will to do what you know needs to be done? Well, it's it's a question of two things: is there the political will, and is there actually the knowledge at the political level to understand what needs to be done? And when we look across our Western liberal democracies, and whether it be Mr. Trump or Mr. Trudeau or a lot of these political leaders, they don't necessarily have the first idea about national security concerns or national security events. And so if you try to fix things in four-year chunks, you can't possibly resolve a generational-type problem. So it is a question of political will, but it's also a question of having some uh, maybe foresight and knowledge in the West about how this is critical to our our way of life is that like let, let's get in front of this thing and then come together, get rid of the bipartisan or become bipartisan on the issue and resolve it. And the partisan politics is what's hurting us in the long term on these issues. Colonel Day, it's, it's frightening to hear you say this because if we look at what's already happened as far as terrorist attacks are concerned and the lives they've claimed, and I know that uh, you know we hear the conventional wisdom that. It's highly unlikely that you're going to find yourself as a victim of a terrorist attack, but but it's still it is it's it's emotionally and psychologically challenging for people when these events take place. It's frustrating to hear and it's concerning to hear that our politicians may not have the they don't know the first thing and they're not bothering to find out what needs to be done or potentially that's the situation. That just opens the door for more trouble. It, it does, and it also is a question of competing priorities. So in any, in any country, you've only got so many resources, so much attention, attention to devote to any given issue. And terrorism, although not an existential threat, you're right, it, it causes concern in individual Canadians, individual Westerners. Um, and going back to our, our topic off the top, if we want to talk about existential threats, we got an existential threat problem from either Russia, China, or North Korea. And if we've got leaders that can't wrap their mind around why we need to invest in defense, then not only can we not resolve the small problems like terrorism, there's no chance of resolving the big problems like a nuclear-armed North Korea with another leader that's uh, maybe not as um, stable as one would hope. Yeah, and, and China putting a nuclear sub into the ocean, one a month. They're not doing that to take tourists out for a ride. Absolutely. When you look at the aircraft uh, carriers they're building, China is flexing its muscles, without a doubt, in the South China Sea, building building islands or aircraft carriers out of sand, if you will. And it, these are challenging PhD-level national security issues. And if we wait too long, there will be an irreversible momentum where we won't have an option. Right now, we have options because specifically the United States is unequaled in global military power and force projection. But again, when you've got potentially some leaders that don't really understand the nuances of geopolitics, you can start walking yourself down some, some dead-end streets. Yeah. Colonel Day, there's a story that's been bothering a lot of people, and uh, that is that Canadian Forces um, members who find themselves, again, on the pointy end of the stick, they find themselves deployed to, uh, to perform their duties, their sworn duties, in some of the most dangerous parts of the world, defined as the most dangerous parts of the world. And, and these members of our forces had a tax deduction, income tax deduction, allowed allowed them for, for doing these terribly hazardous, uh, this terribly hazardous work. That income tax deduction has been clawed back as some of these, some of these places are no longer, or no longer defined as being 
um, extremely dangerous, like parts of Iraq, and I can't understand that thinking. And and I I'm very concerned for for the morale and the impact this has on uh, on uh, on our soldiers, on our men and women of the military. What do you say? Well, no, you're you're right. This is certainly a morale issue, and, and the the hazard and hardship of risk allowance, which is what we're talking about. There's a whole series of calculations about how you come up with whether an area is designated a special duty area, what the hardship and hazard and risk allowance should be for that area. And at the end of the day, if we look at our allies, again, the United States in particular, when they send a service person out of, out of the United States, um, it's tax-free. And why in this country we are so utterly tactical and small-minded in our thinking about these servicemen and servicewomen is, is beyond me. It goes back to an under-resourced national security, national defense architecture. So when you're under-resourced, you've got to find ways to cut costs, and this is, this is one of the ramifications. We're just we're small-minded when it comes to what we're asking the Canadian forces and the men and women in the Canadian forces to do. It's, it's utterly tactical. Yeah, and when we have a prime minister who says that his focus is on the middle class, that sounds like an election campaign waiting to happen. Well, forget about that and start concentrating on the men and the women and, and, uh, and, and, and the armed forces and, and what their needs are and provide them with some, at least some, some financial cover for the, for the risks they take for this country for all of us. Uh, absolutely. And, and this is where I come back to some of the senior bureaucracy that live in the Ottawa bubble. They lose sight of what's actually going on out across this great nation of ours or, or more broadly across the world. They live in the Ottawa bubble and they often lose sight of what's really important. And that, like you said, this is a morale issue. And morale is one of those things that give you that glue that binds together units to fight when required. And when you chip at morale, you cause other unintended consequences on the combat power side. I have about 45 seconds, Colonel Day. The United States military has a new commander-in-chief, Donald Trump. Huge supporter of the military. What I've seen, they're very proud of him or like him because a lot of cheering going on when he's around. What's your assessment? Well, I would, I would have to look at what uh, a number of the national security experts in the United States have been lining up to say um, against the, the president. I don't personally know the man. Um, I don't pretend to know the man. But don't forget, those uniforms that stand around him don't have a choice but to stand there and cheer. It's the same thing in Canada. When you put uniforms around a politician, the uniform there is there to support the government of, uh, the, government of the day. Yeah. Well, I'll introduce you to Donald. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm okay with that. One. Thank you. <laughs> he's, he's lent me a 757 while he's the president. Nice. <laughs> Thanks, Colonel Day. Always good talking to you. Have a, have a great weekend, Roy, and the best of your listeners. Thank you. Uh, Lieutenant Colonel Steve Day, former CEO of JTF2 and uh, the president of Reticle, a premium niche security solutions company. When we come back, it's going to be time for Beauties and the Beast. Once again, Linda Leatherdale is A-W-O-L. But we have Catherine Swift and Michelle Simpson, so please stick around. <laughs> 